Where can we go for truthful reporting in a time when so much of our news media has returned to an age of sensationalism, dubious tabloid-style journalism, and blinkered partisanship? If we're searching for truthful and reliable news on the pro-life cause, we need look no further than EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Today we speak with Prudence Robertson, host of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, the leading national source dedicated exclusively to pro-life news. Prudence Robertson recently shared in an interview that her pro-life convictions have been strengthened by seeing the beauty of adoption, attending a faithful Catholic college, and witnessing the fruits of how reasoned, charitable dialogue can persuade people to become pro-life. Prior to becoming host at EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, Prudence was the former spokeswoman for Susan B. Anthony List, now Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Prudence's three years of experience at SBA deepened her knowledge and passion to advocate for life. Prudence has been featured on numerous national media outlets, including The Daily Caller, The Washington Times, and The Federalist. Prudence received her bachelor's in history and human life studies from Franciscan University of Steubenville, and she is a prolific speaker and advocate for the preborn. We're excited to speak with her today about her transition as host of EW10 Pro-Life Weekly, spotlight some of her favorite stories, most impactful reporting, and to talk more about her own journey within the pro-life cause and where she anticipates the next generation heading after the fall of Roe v. Wade. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I am Tom Shakely, joined once again by the great Ellie Jockums. Ellie, how you doing? I'm doing good. And today we are so thrilled to speak with the one and only Prudence Robertson. Prudence, welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with two great minds in the movement. Thanks for having me on. Look, Prudence, I mean, we've been following uh, all the great reporting you've been doing at EWTN uh, for a while now. I mean, we've been following EWTN Pro-Life Weekly since the beginning, um, you know, and you recently took over as host uh, from Catherine Hadro. Uh, Catherine was there. She was the founding editor, I think, and uh, now you are the host, and you've been hosting just tremendous episodes, I think, carrying forward uh, a strong legacy uh, that was built with the program. But I think most excitingly, at least from my outsider's perspective, is um, you're covering these conversations and leading uh, journalistic inquiries now right as the Roe era has finally concluded. And we're now sort of feeling our way in the dark in the beginning of this post-Roe era. Um, so what has it been like coming in as host of EW Temporal Life Weekly? And we could talk about the Roe stuff later. It has been such a whirlwind. And, you know, when I started in this role in January... We were anticipating that, you know, sometime around late June, early July, we would get this decision. And so coming in with that anticipation just excited me even more to be reporting on these stories. And yes, as you mentioned, Catherine was the founder, the founding host and managing editor of Pro-Life Weekly. And um, when we started having conversations about me potentially being able to host the show, I was like, wow, these are some big shoes to fill. You know, she really set the tone 
for Pro-Life Weekly. Um, she is the person who made it into the top show to go to with all to learn all about um, the most important things that are going on for the movement, whether you're just an average Joe on the street, um, a state legislator, someone working in the movement. Uh, she was reporting on each and every important story. And so to step into that role at such a pivotal moment has been such a blessing. And particularly... Um, being able to report for EWTN, you know, the, the global Catholic network that everybody's heard about um, has just been a great joy. Mother Angelica um, has always been sort of a patroness of mine. I remember, you know, growing up watching her pray the rosary with the sisters on EWTN, um, just watching uh, the network with my parents. I mean, sometimes it was just on the house all day. And so, just to be a part of that legacy that she has set up and, and um, to be serving at a network that is in the business of promoting the truth and what's going to um, help people seek what is good and true and beautiful, especially in such a polarized culture and a culture that so much of the media is just poisoned um, in favor of the abortion industry and the left who who is against everything that we as strong Catholics, people of faith in general, conservative people, all the things that we stand for, that we believe in, that we live by are being attacked by so many, so many in the media. And so um, my mission at Pro-Life Weekly now, and I think generally at EWTN is to just be a light. And it's been an honor and a joy to, to try and live out that mission every day. You're reminding me of uh, the actor John Krasinski, like during the kind of depths of the pandemic, he started some kind of, uh, you might yes. remember the name of it more than, than I do, but it was like a, a feel good yeah, news show, right? News. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And he would just highlight the good things that were happening in the world um, in that short hour, half hour, whatever it was. But yeah, that's, that's our mission. We want people, we want people to have hope about the future. And I think the fact that, you know, Roe versus Wade after, you know, almost 50 years of being under the thumb of that terrible ruling, um, the fact that that has been overturned has really, really galvanized people and given people a lot of hope. And, and to be reporting on that has just been, you know, amazing. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, we're at this kind of pivotal moment, um, certainly in the history of the pro-life cause, but also in American history, I think it's been frustrating as um, both uh, a part of Americans United for Life. It's been frustrating as a pro-life advocate, but it's been also frustrating as a consumer of news. I mean, just as a citizen to see how so much of the conversation in, um, I don't even want to use the phrase mainstream media because Americans now, I mean, the past five, 10 years, especially, we can seek out our, our news. Uh, it's, it's really, I think, actually a golden era um, for news media uh, in the sense that people can seek out the truth. They can discern uh, what sort of outlet, what sort of publication, what sort of source is trustworthy, is doing real reporting. Uh, and so, you know, if mainstream media, you know, 75 years ago meant, you know, your three channels, NBC, ABC, CBS, or 20 years ago meant uh, that plus CNN, MSNBC, et cetera. Well, today, uh, you know, right up there for so many who care about the truth of the issue of the pro-life cause, uh, it includes right at the top of the list, I think, EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, uh, because that's a place that you know you can go where you're not going to see 
um, journalist, guest, anyone try to pass off the idea that something like miscarriage management or uh, resolving an ectopic pregnancy crisis is an abortion procedure, for instance, right? I mean, just to pick one example, uh, I mean, how is it for you at kind of working through those issues as a reporter, as a journalist, as a news host, knowing that uh, so few people are bringing clarity? They're actually, I think, many journalists, whether from simple lack of information or from perhaps malice, uh, poor intent, are muddying the waters. The way that I always go about choosing guests for the show, writing segments, things like that, I always want to think about, okay, who who is the best person to have onto the show that can clear this up? And I'm not really in the business of talking about these things myself. I want the people working on the ground every day on these issues to be the voices that my viewers are hearing, right? So if there's a pro-life bill that's being passed in Alabama or Oklahoma, for example, and there's controversy in the media about, oh, this law, it doesn't have any exceptions for women. Um, Ectopic pregnancy treatment is going to be unavailable for women who live in this state. All the things we've been hearing in the media I want to talk to the state legislator that wrote that bill. And we've had a lot of state legislators on the show, especially in this Dobbs era, this post-Roe era, to talk about the legislation that they are cultivating in their legislatures um, to, you know, go out into the field and talk to these people, I think is so important. And I just got back from Kansas. I went there to report on the value of them both amendment. Most people don't know that in Kansas right now, abortion laws are just as extreme as in California and New York. Can you believe that? And it's crazy too, because their legislature is so, so Republican and they have these, this, these state Supreme court justices, they basically carbon copied what the Supreme court did when they passed Roe, you know, they, they said that there's a so-called right to abortion protected in their constitution. And it tied the hands of legislators in that state to pass any laws that, that stop abortions and save babies and help mothers. Even just simple clinic regulations have been essentially banned in Kansas. But back to, you know, the point of really speaking the truth and trying not to muddy the waters it's so crucial that we're just talking to the people who actually understand the facts. I mean, I saw in the New York Times yesterday an article about how women who have cancer aren't going to be able to be treated for their cancer if they can't have abortion. And the logic, it, it takes such it takes a minute to get to this point, but they basically were saying that because chemotherapy could harm the baby, a woman is not going to receive the treatment that she needs, the chemo that she needs to cure her cancer. But it's like, why do you care about how chemotherapy is going to affect an unborn baby if you're also okay with just killing that baby? The logic is just so flawed. And it is muddying the waters. It's confusing people. It's so many red herrings that we're seeing, you know? And, um, you know, I'm in the business of making sure people are looking at the facts, which is, look, these babies deserve protection. And now they could have it because Roe is gone. And we need to be reporting on the stories where people are doing something to save those babies and, and to help mothers understand um, what their options really are. And, you know, I, I could go on and on. Yeah. And the truth is attractive. So when people hear it, they'll catch on. Prudence, would you be able to highlight two or three of the most powerful episodes you've recorded? Yeah, absolutely. I think like the most obvious one is Roe being overturned. I'll just briefly tell you like what 
that morning was like for me. Um, that Friday, I was actually with uh, some friends from the Napa Institute filming some social media content with them over by the Capitol. And I said to them, hey, like today's a decision day. I don't think it's going to be today. I think a lot of us had that feeling um, that, it, that it wasn't likely it was going to be that Friday morning, but it was an additional day that they had added. So I think everyone was kind of wondering a little bit. Um, but we just decided to walk over there. We just strolled over around 9.59 and I just started hearing people cheering. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what's going on? And there were a bunch of kids from Students for Life there. Kristen Hawkins was there and Teresa Bukovinak's group, um, the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising was there as well. They were like the main pro-life presences and they were all just cheering. I think someone popped a bottle of champagne and everyone just said, you know, the Constitution does does not confer a right to abortion. And I just remember filming like a quick social media video, um, posting it on, on Twitter, and it ended up getting um, like tens of thousands of views. And looking back and seeing how many people had seen that video um, and realizing that I may have been the first person that they heard say those words, you know, scrolling through social media or something. I really just took that moment to thank God for, for putting me in this position where I could just be his vessel to speak, um, such an important piece of truth that we've all been waiting for, for so long, um, to help actualize that was really, um, it was really an amazing moment. Um, yeah, and, and to be on the ground, I mean, I, I I know, you know, it was the same for us at America's United for Life, you know, and, and just to recap for those who might be hearing this to say, you know, uh, you know, Prudence, you mentioned they added a day, you know, if, if you're not in kind of the wonky world of following Supreme Court opinions, uh, every kind of, you know, it can start as, as early as mid-May, um, but certainly last through late June or even into early July in some years. The Supreme Court's practice right. is they trickle out these decisions. You know, they've heard dozens of cases over the course of their annual term, and then they release them uh, in, I think it's actually kind of a fun way. And it kind of reminds me of like, you know, staying up late at night back in the day and trying to get like concert tickets from Ticketmaster or whatever. Like, you know, it's like John Mayer is like going live at midnight and you're there refreshing the screen yes. trying to get those tickets. Uh, but in this case, you're trying to get the conclusions of the Supreme Court on all sorts of cases from, you know, cases like uh, what is the, you know, what are the scope of Miranda rights to um, was the, my, my favorite uh, kind of case from this, this year, other than Dobbs, of course, was the case of a guy up in the Pacific Northwest who ran a place called the Smugglers Inn. And of course, I only found out about these things because we're following these decisions on decision day, hoping that Dobbs would be that day. It's random. You don't know what day, what decisions are coming out. Uh, and uh, anyway, that was a funny case because he runs the smugglers in and it turns out he was literally helping smuggle people across the border. So, you know, it's like kudos to the FBI, I guess, for figuring that out uh, eventually, but, uh, bold, you know, but it's, it's a fun process. And so it leads to, um, you know, I know there were a lot of reports. I'm thinking of, uh, our mutual friend, Mary Margaret Olihan, uh, who's now with the daily wire. We've spoken to her in the past on life, liberty and law. And, Gosh, I mean, I was seeing she was out there every decision day because any day could have been the one. That's right. Uh, and I know Students for Life yeah. and others similarly. Um, but to be out there in front of the court, for a lot of folks, I know, you know, I think of like me before moving to D.C. or my family members when they come to visit, their sense of the Supreme Court is you get to, you know, you're usually walking past it on like a Saturday morning or something. That part of town's kind of dead. There's like 
people jogging, maybe a couple tourists taking photos, mm-hmm. not much going on. Um, but on a Supreme Court decision day, especially like when you were out there for Dobbs, uh, it's much different. I mean, can you kind of paint the scene in terms of like the number of people out there, um, what it's like? Because, you know, with the Supreme Court there, you're right behind the Capitol. So you've got kind of the whole political class from interns and staffers to members as well who can walk right across the yeah. street for their purposes. Yeah. So when the decision first came down, it actually there have been times where I've seen more people there than I did at that moment. I think because we were talking about before, you don't know when these decisions are going to come down. And some people weren't expecting it that day. But I would say there were a couple of hundred, couple hundred people, um, like right after the decision came down. And then I kind of stuck around throughout the day. And, um, you know, immediately in that moment, there were some pro-abortion people that were all riled up. They were upset. Um, But not as hostile as I've seen before. I think maybe they were just stunned that it had happened. Um, The pro-life side was obviously so excited. They were all, you know, taking selfies, posting social media. There was a lot of media out there taking pictures, getting interviews in the moment with pro-life and pro-abortion leaders. Um, And then I stuck around throughout the day and uh, some, only a couple of members came out that I saw. Um, The moment the decision came down, Marjorie Taylor Greene was out there with some of her staffers um, celebrating the moment. And then she went headed back after a little while. Um, And then a a couple of hours after the decision came down, AOC uh, stormed out with some of her staffers. I'll never forget. I was walking sort of by the Library of Congress at this point, and she walked out, you know, sort of that middle middle sidewalk from from where Capitol Hill is. The the members often walk through between the Library of Congress and the Supreme Court. And I'll never forget, she ran through and she stopped kind of like right in front of where I was. And she just yelled, come on, it's time to raise some hell. And all the pro-abortion people like started cheering. And then she ran up to the podium and grabbed someone's megaphone and just started spewing a bunch of ridiculous things about how this is such an important right that's been taken away and all these things. Incredible. Um, That was quite a moment. Um. And yeah, she stayed out there and raw rod for a while and then went back. Um, I had some friends who were reporting like on the ground all day and just people who kind of stuck around for the entirety of the day until it got dark. And um, the anticipation was that it was going to get real wild. You know, the pro-abortion side had been promoting this night of rage. I think people were a little, um, a little wary that we might see some you know, some things akin to the 2020 riots and stuff like that. Um, But thankfully, it never got that crazy from what I could tell. Um, People stayed pretty tempered throughout the day. Um, But you just had people from both sides kind of milling about. Um, But yeah, that was that was what it was like from what I could see in the time I was there. One of the things, uh, and, and we can move on in a moment, but one of the things that was amazing to me, you know, I went out there a, a little bit after, I guess, probably 1 p.m. I had uh, spoken after doing some, um, you know, immediate response for American Center for Life. I went and spoke to uh, the fellows program at American Moment. They were meeting in the Monocle nearby, and then I walked over to the court. And one of the things that struck me at the court at that point, uh, at that point in the afternoon um, there were still pro-life folks, but predominantly at that point, they'd kind of, you know, uh, shifted 
uh, out of the scene and it was uh, increasingly pro-abortion folks. And yeah, I, similarly, I'd heard about the, the you know, night of rage and all the stuff of, of maybe a th- uh, the threats and uh, possibility of violence and so forth. But seeing some of the folks who were coming from like Union Station area, um, some of them, I mean, literally grandmothers uh, who are there with pro-abortion signs, um, uh, or at least that age. Uh, and then on the other end, you know, one of the things that surprised me, it, right in front of the court, I was seeing, uh, I saw a few uh, moms or dads bring their kids uh, you know, both, I mean, children in the sense of say, you know, five to eight to 12 years old. Um, but then also some literally in strollers and they're out there wearing pro-abortion stickers like NARAL stickers, center for reproductive justice stickers. And I, I kind of just stood back on the sidewalk, watching the scene and taking it in. It took me a while to, to kind of work through what I was seeing because, you know, getting past the immediate, like, isn't that bizarre? You know, I mean, they're there with their children advocating for a right to abortion. Um, but stepping further yeah. back from that, you think they're, they're not seeing the contradiction somehow. Um, they're not seeing what I immediately intuited, which is like, what, what are you doing to your child? That this is going to be one of their memories, maybe one of their earliest memories of mom and dad. Uh, that they took you to an abortion rally, you know, which is what that had become at that point. Um, but that's been a part of the contradiction of the abortion cause all throughout, right? It's been um, mothers and fathers who've been told that they should shout it and that they should be proud about perhaps their decision to abort or just perhaps the ability for people to to have abortion despite the violence and self-harm inherent in it. Um I mean, did you see some of those families? I don't know, like if they were that prevalent or if I'm just. Yeah. Yeah. No, Tommy, I'm so glad, glad you brought that up. Um, I had Alison Santafonte on the show, that show following the Dobbs decision, just to react. Um, uh, for people who watch my show, I have a speak out segment that all react to something usually crazy pro-abortion. Um, and it's just a short opinion segment within the show. Um, I had Allison join me for that segment this this week so we could unpack some of that stuff together. And one of the things, yes, I did see those families. Um, but one of the things that struck me more than more than the rest were, I think there were a couple of women who were pregnant. And they had written on their stomachs, not yet human. Like, this is not a baby. Things like that. And I think that is just the epitome of this, you know, like cognitive dissonance that you're talking about. Like somehow these people, they've been lied to about, about what is going on here. You know, like what's going on here is that now after 50 years, hopefully millions of lives can be saved. And whether it's because of wounds from past abortions, from, wounds from, you know, things that have happened in their lives, people who have lied to them about, um, how much abortion can hurt them. Because I mean, it's, it's clear that these are babies, but they continue to deny that these children growing in their wombs are babies. So there's something going on there. And we have to pray for these people who are just clearly so devoid of reality and so separated from what we know to be true. We have to pray for them because it just, it breaks my heart to see, to see these families, these women, especially these young women who are just like violent and yelling in the faces of, 
of young pro-life women, you know, students for life, they have so many beautiful young women who are out there praying for an end to abortion. They were, like you said, one of the groups that was out there every decision day. And they're all just so happy, so excited, so joyful. They seem so honored and blessed to just be there advocating for these babies. And they're met with violence from people who are their age, who, who've just, you know, been dealt a bad hand, I think, in a lot of instances. Um, so we have to pray for them. Yeah, Prudence, um, I read an article of yours on the Catholic Exchange, and you just kind of talked about how abortion has affected our culture as a whole, um, and just how it's like, kind of like the root problem is like that isolation and that loneliness that's kind of growing. So can you kind of talk about, can you talk about your stance um, and how you think abortion has impacted America in culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric Sammons, who writes for Crisis Magazine, he's the editor there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but when he came on my show a little over a month ago, he said something that I think sums up my position really well. Abortion is the root problem of so much brokenness in our world. Um, And I think as people working in the pro-life sphere, especially in the media, it's our job to help people connect the dots between abortion and this loneliness that you talk about, the brokenness of families, you know, and it really goes back to, you know, to get a little bit technical, (laughs) the Roe decision. The Roe decision was one of the worst fabrications of a so-called law, so-called right in the history of our world, I would argue, because it was one of the first, um, you know, cultural, political, you know, jurisprudential decisions that started to rewrite what a human is, the hookup culture has been enabled by abortion. Um, Men don't feel like they have an obligation to women, even if they're in a sexual relationship with them, because, you know, there's nothing that is going to bind them to that person because if they get pregnant, they can just have an abortion. And um, so, you know, not only are we damaging children, you know, precious, innocent children because of abortion and all of the the cultural confusion that that led to, but it's destroying relationships. It's people don't know what real relationships are because, because of the way that abortion and the brokenness that abortion leads to and the woundedness that abortion leads to, it really has just permeated our culture. And so I think we need to be the ones who are helping open people's eyes to that. Um, and seeing that it's this, it's this faulty jurisprudence, the evil intentions of, of people who, you know, have sold their souls to the abortion industry. I feel like I'm getting like really intense now. <laughs> but that's, that's true. like, that's what we're up against. That's what we're up against, you know? And um, we, we've got to be the ones who are helping people realize that and, and doing something about changing the culture. And I think we're at a really unique um, crossroads now to really start affecting a lot of change. I think there's a lot of people running for Congress that um, are going to be strong leaders in restoring a culture that respects families, that protects children, and respects life. Um, so we've got to work on bolstering those people up and just like looking to the future and and like really thinking about how we can help people 
um, see the truth and bring, bring like, you know, a culture of life back to America. Yeah, no, that's, that's so right. I think it's so well said, Prudence. I, I, um, you know, I give, uh, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia a hard time sometimes. And that's the kind of phrase you'd only hear on a pro-life legal podcast. But, uh, you know, Scalia, <laughs> I think was, uh, he did so much good, but, uh, he was just wrong when it came to his view, uh, that the constitution was silent on abortion. I think Justice Kavanaugh, um, good man, just wrong uh, when it comes to the idea that the Constitution is silent on abortion. Um, to have that view, I think, requires uh, um, ingesting a view that law can be severed from reality. The, you know, this is what's called positivism, um, uh, you know, within the legal or philosophical or political world. Uh, the idea that all that there is is what is posited in the law, what is written in the law, the statutes. Um, so if, if a, you know, a legislator wrote it down, then it's the law. Uh, and, you know, if you go back to a much older tradition of classical law, you get uh, into ideas like, you know, uh, lex injusta non est lex, which is just Latin for an unjust law is no law. Uh, and phrases like that. Uh, I think are important to to think on because you know it, it brings us back to what are, what are certain realities that might exist prior even to a written constitution um, because if you get to a point where you think that the constitution can be silent on something like the first and most fundamental of all natural rights which is the right to live at all you know set aside all the other things you think all the things that, that come after that um you know autonomy marriage family political order whatever set aside all those things if a constitution can be neutral or ambivalent about the natural right to live uh it's hard to, to look at that constitution and to have much respect for it on any of the other things that it propounds because it is saying in a sense we we can divorce uh our system our way of life from reality itself um, it cuts away all the roots that existed right, prior to the founding of that political order. Uh, and so I think, uh, although, uh, justice Scalia was wrong on that account, uh, I do want to praise him because he had a great line that you made me think of in talking about kind of the nature of this, uh, way that so many are either wittingly or unwittingly, um, promoting, uh, toxic visions, let's say of what human flourishing are Scalia. I think this was from, um, uh, he did a commencement for his granddaughter's high school uh, back in, mm -hmm. I think, 2010 or so. Um, this this is probably where this is from, but I, I wrote it down here. It's uh, Scalia says, nobody, and remember this, nobody ever came forward with a proposal that read, okay, now let's create a really oppressive and evil society, right? <laughs> You know, Scalia is trying to make that point of like, you've got to kind of assume good intent, right? And it's like, we, we go off the rails. And I think that that applies so well to Scalia himself, right? Because it's like, he's not in thinking the Constitution silent on abortion or Kavanaugh and carrying that idea forward. They're not saying let's create or perpetuate a really evil society. But there's a logic to the idea that can have that effect. Just the way that you're saying there's a logic to the idea of Roe that perhaps human persons aren't really persons at all unless we say they are. And then perhaps the only thing that matters is on a, a vision of autonomy or a vision of human freedom that is totally neutral or ambivalent toward good versus ill. Uh, that can lead to a pretty dark place as it has, right? Right. Well, and I think Alito's opinion combated that so well in just stating so clearly the right to life is rooted 
in the history and tradition of our nation. And he referred to the fact that going back to colonial times, there were statutes on the books saying that abortion was a crime. And I think like, that's all you have to say. That's all you have to know. And people just need to recognize that when Roe was decided, that history, the true history of abortion jurisprudence in our nation was totally erased. And that's why I think I like Alito was the best possible person to write that opinion. I'm so glad he did because he has so much knowledge about the truth here. Since we started in January, do you have like one or two episodes that um, just kind of like really inspired you personally? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the one that I don't, I don't know about inspired, but struck me the most um, was reporting on the DC five, the babies who were found um, that were allegedly aborted at the Washington Surgical Clinic by Cesare Santangelo. Um, these babies were, you know, aborted very far into the pregnancy and um, the group POW um, found these babies and rescued them from, um, from a truck of medical waste. And they actually found um, hundreds of babies that were aborted earlier in pregnancy as well. Um, but they, they published some images with live action of these babies that I'm sure a lot of people probably listening to this podcast have seen now. Um, I'm sure you've heard about these babies, but just reporting on um, all of that as it was being uncovered uh, really, really struck me. I mean, I cried when I saw those pictures. Um, it just, it is the reality of abortion. And it reminded me of um, what we're fighting for every day, that these babies would be saved. And just, I think, um, uncovering, you know, I, I got to speak with Sam Dorman, who's working over at Live Action, now writing and reporting for them, speaking with him about how he was reporting on all of this and just talking to him about the fact that the Biden administration and the agencies um, within the administration are just, they're controlled by pro-abortion extremists who want to cover up what's going on in these, in these abortion clinics. I mean, I, I still don't think, I'm not sure if there's been an autopsy on the babies at this point, but we were fighting for that for so long to, to ensure, um, you know, that we knew the facts about how these babies were killed. I mean, they were probably, they probably underwent partial birth abortions, which are illegal and, um, you know, painful for these children. Um, and, you know, the Department of Justice, Mayor Bowser, she's covering it up. Mary Margaret Olihan, you mentioned her before, Tom. She went to the Washington Surgical Clinic, did some fantastic reporting on this. Um, and it was an honor to be one of the reporters reporting on that story as well. Um, and uh, I think the second episode, um, I would say, was more recent. Um, uh, a priest named Father Fidelis Machinsky is a priest up in New York. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know his story as well as some others, but he is a pro-life activist who um, regularly prays in front of the Planned Parenthood abortion clinic near where he lives. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, he was arrested for um, 
successfully shutting down a Planned Parenthood in New York for a few a few hours. And the way that he did it is he took some really heavy industrial locks and chains and he just locked the door, locked the gates of this Planned Parenthood. And the police came, they weren't able to, to unlock the chains. And so they had to wait for the fire department to come. And it had been about two or three hours by the time the, the fire department finally got there. And so he stopped abortions for three hours at that clinic. And even when they opened the gates, um, this priest, Father Fidelis, he laid down in the middle of the road in front of the cars and the people that were trying to get in. Um, I just think it was such a good example of a nonviolent um, protest of abortion. And honestly, like so brave of him. Um, you know, he knew that he could be violating federal or state laws, but he wanted to save these babies. And when I brought him on the show to, to talk to him about this, um, I asked him, you know, what what would you say to someone who says this is a step too far that you would that you would um, you would be arrested for this that you would you would break a, a federal civil law to save these babies? And he just said, "Imagine if you were one of those children who was scheduled to be executed. Wouldn't you want every measure to be taken to save your life?" And it's just so true. And it just, it just inspired me to be brave in fighting for these children. And I think, I think his message is, is a good one for all of us, especially when this fight gets hard because it does get hard. You know, there are moments where, you know, sometimes a lot of us probably wonder, you know, is all this worth it that we're doing? And it is because there are so many babies that we're saving. I think that we don't, we won't ever know about in our lifetimes and it'll be a joy to meet them in heaven someday and, and to, to be with them celebrating, you know, the fact that we've put our time on earth to good use to fight for what's true. Yeah. Those are such powerful stories, Prudence. I think, um, really on both counts. I mean, the, uh, the, the work of, uh, Teresa Bukovinak and Lauren Handy and others, uh, affiliated with, uh, that group, uh, progressive anti-abortion uprising, has been amazing to see. They're pretty much brand new. I mean, I think they launched officially in 2022, uh, or at least late last right. year. Um, and you know, I know Teresa and some others uh, recently served time in uh, the detention facility in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, um, and I think that, that kind of highlights what we spoke about a few minutes ago of, you know, how can there be a law uh, that's unjust? You know, isn't the law the definition of justice? Uh, and you think, no, I mean, look at Martin Luther King and the entire campaign for civil rights in the 1940s, right. 50s, and ultimately culminating in the 60s, civil rights acts. Uh, all of that required being able to say there might be laws on the books. Um, you, know, you think of, I mean, uh, the case of like Loving v. Virginia um, and the question of can you have interracial marriage? Right. Uh, that's an example of a law that existed on the books uh, that said no interracial marriage that was unjust, <laughs> unjust on, on a natural mm -hmm. rights basis. Uh, and the law thankfully, uh, you know, corrected itself. The constitutional um, principles were, were aligned with uh, natural rights principles. Um, but where we are now in the kind of, um, in the kind of activism and witness that uh, is being portrayed as if it's extremist is in line with what most Americans believe. Um, most Americans uh, don't want to see abortion expanded. Um, most Americans don't want abortion in their community. 
very few people think the way that the sort of folks who brought their kids out in front of the Supreme Court think um, that, you know, like you're speaking about the, the pregnant mothers even who have written on their stomachs, not yet a life, uh, not yet a person. Um, you know, it's like fewer than 10% of people roughly have that kind of view. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak for a second, Prudence, to uh, something I've noticed in the wake of the fall of Roe, which is that, you know, we're speaking today as people of faith on this program. I think we're all very open about uh, our Christian faith, our Catholic beliefs. Um, and that's important. Those are important things. Um, at the same time, you know, our pro-life activism uh, and our advocacy for human rights is rooted in science. This is, I think, a, a thing that there's this idea right. that faith and reason are in conflict. Uh, we know as Catholics that's not the case, but I think if you're not um, of our beliefs, you might not have that insight. You might think, does the Bible tell Christians what to do? Does the Pope tell Catholics what to do? Uh, and we've confronted that kind of thing for a long time. You know, that your pro-life views are just because the church tells you to think that way. Um, we look toward science, the science of embryology, uh, what we know about the moment of sperm egg fusion, when a unique and distinct and unrepeatable human person comes into existence with the genetic material that will determine the whole trajectory of their material life. Uh, so we look to science for these things as the basis for why we would want to protect human persons from that moment. Um, but in the wake of Roe, after decades of Christians, especially being told that their activism was dishonest. It was really sort of uh, inadmissible because it was just their religious views. It wasn't really anything else. That's what they're told. Now I'm seeing all sorts of media from folks. You know, some sometimes it'll be a, a, a branch of uh, Muslims. Sometimes it'll be a, a branch of Jews or atheists or others who will be get, standing up and saying, "Well, my religious tradition uh, says that abortion's really good." Uh, you know, the, we've, we've gotten, I've gotten letters in the mail to, at America's Center for Life from folks saying abortion is a mitzvah in my interpretation of Judaism. How dare you, you know? Uh, and, and now it seems as if it's being turned the other way, that suddenly we should be imposing pro-abortion laws because some religious traditions allegedly, uh, I don't think it's the case, support abortion. Have you noticed this? And, and what, do you, what do you make of it? For so many of these people, abortion is their religion they're threatened and, and they're um, deep down, they're seeking for that fulfillment. Um, and so they're trying to fill a void. Um, but I think, I think abortion is their religion. And so they think that they're one upping us by saying, Oh, well, my religion says this. They, they think that they're, they're speaking to us in our language perhaps by saying that. So you think they're looking at it as if it's it's really is we've basically been lying the whole time, you know, that for Kavanaugh or for Barrett or for Scalia, it really was all because they were Christians. Everything was kind of a mirage and now they're going to adopt what they think worked. Right. I mean, have they ever actually tried to understand the pro-life position? Have they ever listened to us when we say, you know, um, we believe that these unborn children deserve t protection because we know that at th as early as three to six weeks, their hearts start beating that they have a preference for their left or right hand at 10 or 12 weeks old, that their hearts have pumped, you know, 
hundreds of quarts of blood through their veins when they're 14 weeks old? No, like they, they don't listen to us because they're totally closed off to um, a point of view that is not theirs. And so I think they're just, yeah, I'm perhaps trying to adopt what they think worked, but I, but I think it's also exposed, um, you know, you know, th- they often write people off who are religious, but Roe being overturned has exposed the fact that they know that the church and that God have power because look at the way they've been attacking churches and pro-life pregnancy centers. I mean, I think what it's really doing is it's, it's exposing this, this facade that they've held that they, they think that we, we have no power, but really all of the power is on our side because we have God on our side. And now I think it's like, it's getting up to almost 80, 90, a hundred churches that have been vandalized and attacked in the wake of Roe because abortion is, is the complete opposite of, of the truth of our faith. You know, they, they know that the Eucharist and the presence of God living in us is the biggest, the most ultimate threat to their culture of death. And, um, I think that they're having a rude awakening and they're grasping at straws. Um, and perhaps that's why they're coming at this more religiously now. We talked with uh, with Ambassador Sam Brown back recently, and you know mentioned in there. Um, Ryan Anderson spoke to this. Uh, it might have been at the Life After Row Symposium we were uh, attending uh, a few weeks ago. But uh, he said somewhere recently, you know, he's like, "Look, if you're the Satanic Church or whatever, you can make." And I'm paraphrasing. You can make an argument uh, that like your religious beliefs, uh, you know, involve a right to abortion. Um, but that doesn't mean that you win anything. You know, the, the point is that, you know, you can claim a right to homicide, uh, but you can't, you know, uh, actually vindicate that um, in terms of jurisprudence, in terms of the law, uh, because homicide's illegal. <laughs> so there are all sorts of things that you can claim are, are on religious grounds. Uh, the pro-life movement, from a legal standpoint, never has, has ever claimed uh, that abortion is wrong on religious grounds. It's never been wrong on religious freedom grounds. It's been wrong because it's unjust, because it's a violation of the first and foremost human right. That's it. End of story. On Pro-Life Weekly, of course, we talk about how it does go against our, our moral and religious beliefs. You know, we, we often talk about President Joe Biden, who proclaims to be Catholic, but is launching a whole of government response to make sure abortion stays prevalent in America. And, um, you know, that, that's like a specifically, that's something we can talk about specifically on pro-life weekly, um, because it's a Catholic network, but yeah, ultimately when we're, you know, arguing apologetically for the rights of these unborn babies, we look to science, we look to the law, we look to justice. Um, and it's just clear they deserve protection. One thing that I've noticed is when I have, when I talk to people, a lot of times they say like, you've never been in that situation. So why you can't say anything about it. Um, and I'm sure like, as you're kind of like a face of pro-life dialogue, you see that a lot with like friends and family, like you're just naive. You don't know any better and kind of using that tactic. So what would your response, like if you've gotten that response, if you've gotten that question before, what do you think the right response is to that? You know, I think this happens most often with women who have had abortions um, 
or women that know someone who had an abortion, maybe helped someone get an abortion, um, they'll say, you know, you've never been in that position. So what, like you haven't, or, you know, even, even like women to men, you know, like they'll say no uterus, no opinion. Um, the way that I always respond to that question initially is just, I usually just say something like, I, I really want, like, I, I get where you're coming from. I know that I've never been in this situation before, but I sympathize with you. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And I want to be here for you to help you get through this. And ultimately, when we confront a woman who has had an abortion or is thinking about having an abortion, what we're confronting is a woman full of fear. And... I think the most important thing is to cast out that fear. So usually I'll say a little prayer to Mary and just say, Mary, like, help me be peace for this person. Help me to be a a calm, strengthening presence in their life as I head into this conversation. I think grounding yourself in that way is really important. And then I just like to listen. You know, people who, who have that view, they're not they're not usually going to even hear like the first things that, that you say to them to try to convince them of something else. So I think the best way to approach conversations like that is to listen more than anything and to say, I'm here for you. I want to understand what you're going through and I, I want to make it better. I want you to be happy and I want to help you and I want to help your baby. Um, and when you approach someone with that openness, just kind of holding out your hands and saying like, I'm here um, that's when I've had the most success in really being able to help someone and, and loving them for who they are and the situation that they're in. Um, I think that would be my, my advice. There's been a lot of great stuff in terms of what Congress is looking at now in terms of this post row era. I'm thinking of, um, particularly Senator Marco Rubio has really been leading on this Representative Nancy Mace, um, Mitt Romney to his credit. Uh, I'm thinking of something like the standing with moms act, uh, and, uh, <laughs> And some other things, uh, you know, and you know, you know what I'm saying there. Yeah. And, uh, and I think there's, there's important stuff to be done. Um, the idea that Congress can now do things that matters on a systemic and, and national level now that Roe has gone to instantiate what the pro-life movement has had to do for decades on just a person to person level. Uh, we can now say we can actually do this in Congress and mm-hmm. we should get bipartisan support for it. Right. I think it's going to take a while to move toward that. Um, but I can see that reality coming. I can see that being a, you know, another point of, uh, of light and hope for you to report on, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I have already started asking members of Congress when they come on my show, um, how long is it going to be? I mean, I ask it in a more tactful way than this, but how long will it be until we see, you know, a ban on abortion in, in Congress, you know, at least for a debate or a vote? Um, I think that that's, I mean, why wouldn't we not start, like, why wouldn't we start advocating for, for that? Um, You know, when you look back to the opinion, it says abort, like life is deeply rooted in the principles of our nation. And so, you know, yes, Dobbs has restored democracy to our nation. And now every state can decide what, what they want to do when it comes to legislating on abortion. But Hopefully in, in uh, November when Republicans take back the House and I'm hoping we make some gains in the Senate too. I think some people are not as confident about that, but I am. I'm confident that we can make some significant gains in the Senate. Um, 
what nothing should stop these members from starting to try and re reinstitute some of that historical foundation that we have that's on the books that protects life. And, you know, we've got to stand up to these, um, to these Republicans who aren't, um, who aren't so strong on this. They're not stupid. They know what they're doing and they've got to shape up these Republicans that are in the house that are voting for these things. And I hope that when we get some new, fresh, strong members in, in November, that they'll, they'll galvanize the Republican party to be stronger. Um, and, and I'm hoping that they are, you know, they sort of are the beginning of a new era for us where we, we really are able to stand up for what we believe in and what's really going to protect families and children. Prudence, I have one last question for you. What do you think the next generation looks like with the fall of Roe? I think it looks hopeful. You know, we've been talking a lot um, throughout this whole time about how um, we're definitely entering a season of hope where a lot can be changed, where a lot of babies can be saved. Um, I think there's a lot of people, young people, who are pro-life. I think people are looking for the real answers to tough questions now. And I think, as Tom was saying before, we have a lot of... um, it's it's not just the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and Fox News that's out there anymore. There are increasingly so many avenues for people to seek out and find the truth. And um, I recently gave a speech to some um, high school graduates who are graduating and going to college. And my advice to them was to think critically, um, to not um, just take everything you hear for for truth um, because there are people out there who want to indoctrinate you to believe things that are good for their agenda. Um, and we need to come up against that and use our well-formed minds that the Lord has given us to, to seek out the truth. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of young people out there who want that. I mean, um, I was looking at clips from the, uh, from the Tampa Turning Point Summit. And you can just tell that there are a lot of like galvanized young people who like, who want change, who like reject this, um, this broken America that we're seeing right now under, under Joe Biden. And they want to be, they want to be the people that, that restore our culture. Um, So I'm hopeful for the future. Um, I think that, you know, the best is yet to come. Yeah, I'm thinking forward to, you know, 2050 or 2060 to a point where this issue is bipartisan again, because all agree with Congress who has prohibited abortion with the Supreme Court that's upheld, uh, you know, perhaps the, you know, human life amendment of the future, uh, who's recognized that it's incompatible with constitutional justice to allow abortion violence. Uh, and where the the issue is finally settled for justice. I think that's what you're speaking to. And Prudence, I'm so glad uh, for all that you're doing with EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. We're going to link, of course, to your show in the show notes for the episode. Um, But every week is an incredible episode. I always love getting, I get the weekly emails, so I always know when the episodes are out and can share those. Uh, We'll link to uh, to, uh, that as well so folks can sign up for those. Um, but yeah, thanks for what you're doing and thanks for, uh, for all the stories you're, you're spotlighting as we need more hope. It's really true. We need it. So thank you, Prudence. Yeah, 
Of course. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me on. And if anybody listening ever has a story that they think we should report on, uh, you can DM me at Prue's Pulse on Twitter or um, shoot us an email at prolifeweekly.com. So thanks so much for having me on. And thanks for all you guys are doing at AUL. You guys are fantastic. I am Tom Shakely. Thank you for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. <laughs>